Denver Underground number three with Dr. Emmy Betts. We're talking all kinds of schools today, public schools, private schools, and Ivy League schools. We're also going to talk about elderly drivers and most importantly, suicide prevention. Okay, we are here with Emmy Betts, who's one of the professors in the emergency medicine department at uh, University of Colorado Hospital, who's done a lot of work with uh, on suicide, suicide prevention, and old people driving in if it's safe and how do you get them off the roads when it's appropriate and uh, other things like that. So I'd just like to welcome her um, to our podcast. Super. Thanks for having me. I should probably clarify, I wish I was a professor. I'm still just uh, an assistant professor, but... That's so, good. Thanks for the promotion. Yeah, no problem. I'll promote anybody on this <laughs> at this place. And uh, I still have no idea what the difference between professors and assistant professors are. So I'll, I'll, I have some leeway there, at least from my side. Okay. Um, so you have had, uh, you have come through a pretty interesting, well, at least looking at your resume, you've come through some pretty high level channels to get to where you're at here. Um, but let's kind of talk about the, the path that brought you to medicine and kind of where, let's start with where you're from and um, kind of your upbringing. And, and yeah, that. sure. So I'm a Denver native okay. and grew up with two scientist parents. And I at first tried to buck away from science and then just gave up and embraced my nerdiness fully. Uh, during college, decided to study biology. Um, and then actually discovered public health when I was sort of still trying to, th I was thinking about going to grad school and I didn't know what I was doing and discovered the, the field of public health and was sort of first fascinated by that. Okay. And then, um, but in thinking about that and thinking about career options, decided I really liked also sort of helping people one-on-one, -on -one, which is how I ended up in medical school then. With a, always had the plan though that I was gonna include public health work in what I do. Okay, interesting. So you, let's go, we'll take it a couple steps okay, back. Okay, sorry, so, I went kind of No, fast. you went fast, but that's fine. <laughs> I, gave you the, I gave you the open road to drive fast because you're not old, so True. that's okay for, for, for you to do that. So uh, your parents, your, your father's actually one of our professors at the med school here and uh, teaches in the, here. And uh, so what was it, why didn't you, why'd you want to buck science right off the bat? I think it's because, um, so my parents are both basic scientists. My dad's a physiologist. Uh, do not act, ask me about action potentials because okay. I don't remember anything about them. Uh, but I think I grew up with sort of these like, conversations about whatever, RNA and 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 uh, um, synaptic vesicles and all kinds of things at the dinner table. And I just, like many teenagers and college freshmen, felt like I was going to do something different. Um, and so I... Uh, I think that's why it wasn't because like they weren't happy with their jobs. They always they still love what they do. Yeah. I think it was more just like I was sick of science. Sick of science. Too many. <laughs> was it synaptic vesicles? Was it it, it was? might have been. Yeah. I don't know. Too many I mean, like botany experiments and like yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are classic dinner dinner table conversations. They I think are. most people go through those. At yeah. Some point I think that's life. what I realized in college. Was yeah. It wasn't that different. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, so you were uh, you were born in Denver, and where'd you go to school here? Uh, I went to Grayland, which is a private school for okay. a long time, uh, and then I went to Manual High School, okay. uh, which no longer exists, sadly. Um, I did. I spent a year in Germany in the middle of high school okay. uh, at a German school, and then came back. Little known fact: I was the prom queen, actually, nice. at Manual High School, nineteen ninety something. I won't say. <laughs> um, and it, but it was really interesting mix of sort of from. Uh, private school to uh, a high school in the inner city that was a 
very diverse population of kids. Okay. And where, where was Manual exactly? It's in Five Points. In Five Points. That's what I thought. And yeah. So uh, what was the choice? Why did you make the choice to switch? Because that's a big, yeah, I mean, Grayland is one switch. of our like fancier schools to that school. What, what? Yeah. And I will say the reason I ended up at Grayland was because at the time um, my sister and I started going to school. We live really close to Grayland. And so there was busing and my parents didn't really want us on the school bus for like 45 minutes a day each way. And so um, that that was sort of their initial reason for putting us in uh, in Grayland, that it was a really good school right by our house. Okay. Um, but I think I was, I had gotten a fantastic education, um, but I was really kind of sick of that environment and I wanted um, to, to get a little bit more exposure, I guess. Um, I remember having very, mm, loud fights with my parents about it. I think they were really worried that my education was going to suffer, that the classes wouldn't be good enough for what I needed for college and things. But my sister had gone to manual and then gotten into Yale. So they're, uh, they're, they didn't have a great, they didn't have a great argument. So okay. <laughs> I won. Yeah. That's a pretty good argument. Actually. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so that was, you probably went in probably about freshman year. Did you go straight in? No, I actually went, so Grayland went through ninth grade. So okay. I went sophomore year to manual and then we moved to Heidelberg, Germany. Okay. Sadly, I don't get to use my German much at, at UCH. There's not a large German, German population Every here. Once in a while. Um, but that was really cool. I, I was, uh, I went to a German school and okay. you can drink beer when you're 16 in Germany. So it was, it was great. And then I came back for senior year okay. of high school. And what do you, what was like, what was an in, influential about your time in Germany? I think it was that I really came out of my shell that year. I think I was always, um, more of a little, like a little bit of a homebody before that maybe, and like never went to summer camp and was sort of shy about stuff, I guess. And then within two months of being in Germany, I went, I was going on school trips on the train to different countries and I was speaking a different language at school and um, I had friends from all different countries. And I think it just, it it opened up a whole new world of ideas for me and also made me really confident in my, um, in myself. Okay. And then I've traveled a ton ever since then because I love it. Yeah, and that was kind of like the, that yeah. was the, the, the first get book. out of the, yeah. the house. <laughs> and then, so how do you think, do you think that set you up well for going to manual after that? Um, yes and no. I will say that that's, that senior year was really hard in that I, I think anytime you go away and then come back, it's hard because I had been, I just had the, this incredible life-changing experience and everybody else had like just been a junior in high school. Right. And so it, it, it was hard because I think, people couldn't totally relate to what I'd done. And this was before the internet and before email. So, I mean, I'd been writing letters to people, but it's not like we were Facebooking and stuff to stay in contact every yeah. day. So that senior year was tough because it was sort of like treading water until college. And, you know, I had been going to bars with friends where it was normal as a teenager to like go have a beer or two and not get super drunk. And then you come back to high school and it's sort of a different right. vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So I don't know that was manual. I think that was just high school. That was yeah. probably just just yeah, high school, just the United States <laughs> at that time. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. And what do you? What was like? So switching to manual at that time. What were the? What were kind of like your friend structure when you when you got there? Oh yeah, good question. So there were a couple people who went there with me from Grayland or who'd already gone there. So I knew a couple people going in, um, which was nice. And then. Um, you know, it, it, it was a really diverse school, but I will say it was still segregated in that there was the 
not not so much by race, but by sort of college bound or not. Mm. So they had a, a number of AP and honors classes and that's what all the kids going to college were in. And so okay. we were kind of a smaller group. And then sort of the rest of the school was in other classes. And so I think sometimes that fell along race lines, but um, that, that felt like a bigger division. But um, it was, um, you know, a mix of kids from Denver, some pretty wealthy and well off, but most not. And um, I remember it was in the midst of a, a big gang war and there was a fair amount of violence. Mm. I mean, I look back now and I know why my parents were like, you can't, what are you doing? Right. But you know, I remember there was like a girl in my English class who'd had, uh, who she was a, uh, or she was in my drama class, she was a freshman and she, she always carried this teddy bear with her and she seemed kind of off. And then I found out halfway through the year, it's because in the summer, her brother, they'd been sitting on the porch and her brother had been mm. killed in a drive-by in front of her when she was like 14. Mm. And it was hard to, it was hard to process that. I didn't even know what really to do with that, but I already on some level, like I sort of got, like, that's why she has a teddy bear and is coping with, yeah. you know, coping with violence that she shouldn't have to cope with. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I was on the gymnastics team. I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I tried out all kinds of new things, Emmanuel. Yeah. That's good. I did a lot of drama and yeah. So all right. It was a good experience overall. Yeah. Yeah. And th that sounds like, a, actually sounds like a good foundation of under, kind of understanding people that are from many different backgrounds probably going into the, the field that we're in now. Mm -hmm. Might be pushing the, the, it a little bit, but. Um. No, I think so. I mean, I think that, that at the time I had no idea and I, I still feel on a daily basis like I have had a pretty sheltered upbringing and sometimes at least recognize that I don't can't really understand what some of our patients are going through mm -hmm. um, but I, I guess I hope that at least recognizing that goes some ways of being able to acknowledge that instead of pretending like yeah. you do know what they're talking about but um, I think that's a challenge for all of us probably because we all clearly succeeded in finishing school and doing well and things right. and um, uh, so it's it, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, <laughs> I, and I think that's and I think that's true, and I think that perspective coming in the door probably helps a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Helps a lot. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so you also go. So you follow your, your sister's footsteps. Yeah. Yeah. And go to Connecticut. To I went to Connecticut. Yeah, okay. I did think very seriously. I don't want to be just like my big sister. But okay. I loved Yale and uh, got in and didn't. Yeah, was and had a fantastic four years there. Okay, and what Except was New Haven? Is the weather is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> what what particularly about like? So I know people love Ivy League schools and going going there, and they really have. Except Harvard. Except for Harvard, yeah. of course. Yeah. That place must be. I should. I think our chair of our department is is from somewhere around. There. I actually went to a Harvard residency, so I uh, I just say that because it's a Yale. Okay, but so what? What about it? Particularly, like, helped form you where you're at, and why was it such a, why yeah. it was such a positive experience? I think for me, what was key, and you know, I think it's important to recognize that, like, the Ivies are all sort of different in how they're set up, and um, I think Yale was really good for me because their focus, um, their their real emphasis is on the undergraduates more than the graduate students. Mm -hmm. And so they have this college system so that you feel like you're in a small college even though it's a larger university. So there's these residential colleges. You have a smaller group of people who you're living with and seeing at dinner every night. Okay. So you feel like it's a closer community. I think I would have been totally lost at like CU with just masses of people. Okay. Um, 
and yet then it's a big enough university that has incredible um, incredible offerings um, and I think other places you know focus more on their graduate students for example than their undergrad so you know everyone's a little bit different I don't know why we love them so much though like it it it's funny I think back now I mean we didn't have like cell phones it was all very I, w I wonder how it's different now or not I don't know but it it, it was like this just awesome I'm st I, my best friends are still um, from college and I think it's because they it's this collection of people who are smart but also really interested in the world mm. if that makes sense so like it's not just like book smart nerdy but it's people who want to do good things and be leaders and change things and solve problems and so they're just like really interesting conversations and yeah. my friends have gone on to do everything from uh, one of my friends wrote the Star Wars. What if Shakespeare wrote Star Wars? I was Wars hoping books? you were going to bring that up. I did. Yes, he's a good friend. That. I can All get right. signed copies for anyone. He actually. So as an example, he is also a pastor. Stars in TV commercials, hmm. uh, and then wrote these books for fun because he writes an iambic pentameter for fun, <laughs> and he loves Star Wars. So why wouldn't you write that? Translate the whole right. trilogy. Just yeah. go for it. Yeah. But then, I mean, you know, there's uh, uh, Ari Shapiro, who's on NPR, who's okay. at the was in my class at Yale too, and okay. you know, it just, it 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 was even as freshmen, it was like you just get, it was just cool, smart people excited to kind of go change the world somehow. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. No, I like people. That but are dorky change the world. too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so you were interested in public health there. Um, so it, I went in thinking I was going to do bioethics and be a lawyer, and okay. then I took constitutional law, and it was like the most boring thing I'd ever done in my life. So I decided against law, and then I was thinking about biology grad school and was actually working in a really boring lab at the NIH one summer and met a woman who'd gotten a master's in public health, and I had never heard of it. But I checked out a book, and it blew me away because I, th I think I'd heard about, you know, like disease detectives and... My mom's a microbiologist, so she used to tell us about like guinea worms or weird, whatever, weird. Okay, my family was weird. But we used to talk about, you know, <laughs> those dinner, kinds of things. Of Over dinner, yeah. yeah exactly. And um, I just didn't really know what public health was and got really excited about sort of going to work for the CDC and, and malaria and sort of those kinds of public health problems. Was, I was super interested in that. But felt like if I just did a, a master's in public health, I'd sort of um, be more limited maybe in terms of what I could do in the field but also felt like I wanted some direct patient contact even though looking back now I knew nothing about patient care and I'm amazed that I got into medical school <laughs> uh, and so I sort of went into medical school with the plan to combine them somehow mm -hmm. and was there anybody that you interact with interacted with during your like public health phase who really has influenced you going forward who had good lessons for you at that time or yeah so I um, so I got into medical school and then did my MPH in the middle okay. and um, starting med school I thought I was gonna do infectious diseases and then I decided internal medicine was not for me so I had chosen emergency medicine by the time I did my MPH and I took a class in injury because I was like, that sounds relevant to emergency medicine, but I didn't know anything about the actual field of injury prevention. And I was lucky to take it with the woman who's basically one of the grandmothers of the field. And it's a cool story because she's actually a nurse who just started doing things and I think eventually got an honorary doctorate, but is a leader in the field, although she never kind of had the traditional training. So she's the lady who invented things like runaway truck ramps, and huh. which I was like, oh, I'm from Colorado, yeah, we have those. We know all about those, yeah. And sort of, I had never thought about 
how you can prevent injuries through things like environmental approaches. So okay. things like rumble strips on the side of roads, right? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Or you might not know that the signs on highways now, if you run into them, instead of breaking your car in half, they actually flip off over your car. And oh. they're designed to do that to save people. But you wouldn't even know that. So yeah. the idea is that people always do stupid things, but we can make them safer through airbags and seatbelts and um, engineering approaches to how we sort of modify things. So I, I, I remember that class as really changing the direction of my academic interests. Okay. And it gave up malaria to really start thinking about um, preventing trauma and preventing injuries. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And who was, who was that? Sue Baker. Sue Baker. Do you keep yeah. in touch with her at all? No. And I was too shy at the time to actually like get to know her and okay. then later realized how extraordinary it was that I'd gotten to work with her. I, and there was another, there was a man who co-taught the class who I also don't really know personally, but he's, I also now realize very influential, named Jan Vernick, who is a, uh, who's a lawyer, public health researcher who um, gave a whole lecture on firearms and firearm safety and, and specifically how we could un- engineer guns to be safer. Hmm. So things like, you know, like those disposable cameras that show you how many pictures are left. Yeah. So you could make a gun that shows you if there's a bullet in the chamber. Like, that's easy. That seems easy. Um, but for political reasons, those guns aren't made and they aren't sold. And this is like an ongoing thing now, oh. even though I heard his lecture, you know, over a decade ago. But I remember thinking, like, what a cool way to approach this issue is how do you intrinsically make a product potentially safer to prevent unintended yeah. injuries? Yeah. So. No, that's cool. I mean, I think like the, the rumble strips have probably saved me 20 times, but <laughs> even like the sign stuff is fantastic and um, anything on guns would be great, even though yeah. that's, a, that's a whole other topic. We could talk about that all day. We could talk about all, I could talk all about day. guns all day. So at some point you make the choice to go into emergency medicine uh-huh. and what, what, what about EM kind of, what did you like about emergency medicine compared to internal medicine or surgery yeah. or other choices? So I was lucky that it was a required rotation for me and it was actually my first rotation and I didn't know anything about it and I was terrified and I thought it was like too sort of adrenaline fueled for me and then I realized I really liked it and I every time I was on another rotation we come back down to the ED I got kind of excited and I think for me it's a lot of the multitasking um, and sort of constant distractions I think I have some ADD I didn't know about right like we all do Um, and um, I realized that was a really good personality fit so to this day I, I don't love the sort of like the cardiac arrests, the way, say, Dr. Perman might get excited by cardiac arrest, yeah. right? I, I like the sort of multitasking, managing lots of things at once is sort of more what I think I feel good about at the end of the day, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I think what really did it for me was that the, I remember, so I was, I was at Hopkins uh, in inner city Baltimore, and there was a little kid who had run in front of some kind of like, I think it was one of the like light rail things. Mm-hmm. It had caught his ankle. He was probably 10. And he degloved his entire lower leg. Mm. And I remember being in the trauma bay with him. I was a medical student. And the surgeons are now at the foot of the bed arguing about what to do and sort of ignoring him. And I mean, appropriately deciding on a plan of care and stuff. But he's like this kid terrified. And I remember thinking that and they decided they were going to amputate it. And I remember thinking that for that kid, that was his before and after day. That mm. before that day, he was like a normal kid running around. And now he was going to have, he was going to be missing a leg. He was going to have pain and surgery and recovery. And, you know, hopefully he would grow up to be 
happy with who he is and all that, but still was going to face challenges because of that disability, especially during teenage years and things. And I remember f thinking what a um, what a privilege it was to be with him on that day, mm -hmm. and that if there was a way to make that experience a little bit better through excellent care or being nice or making him less scared, that yeah. that's sort of an extraordinary thing we get to do. Yeah. And I, I try to remind myself of that on shifts, that for most people, a visit to the ED is an unusual thing. Not all patients, most patients, right. And that they're yeah. scared and they don't know what's going on and that, you know, part of our job is to, to, to try to help make that experience a little less scary. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you've gone through, you've gone through your residency you, uh, I think I've seen some papers during your residency that you worked on during that time. But now, now you're focused really on, um, on you do some work with uh, older drivers and um, kind of safety issues in there, uh, but also a lot of work with suicide and suicide prevention and um, screening and those uh, and those issues too. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that work and see mm -hmm. how how you, how did you first get into that? Like, what yeah. was the first step? Well, so I had finished my MPH in medical school. So coming out, I was looking for a residency where I could do some research. And I, I kind of was already uh, focused in some sense. I knew I wanted a career related to injury prevention research. So I was a little ahead of the game in that sense, um, just because I'd already done the master's. So as a resident, I had putts around on a couple projects. Yeah. And um, then I got interested in driving as a resident, I think because um, I was interested in teenage driving and how well we've done with, like, huh restricted licensing in teenagers, which, you know, you can't drive after a certain time of night when you're yeah. 16 until you're 17, that kind of thing. And that came out of research that got translated to policy. And does that work? Like, is yeah. that something that keeps kids alive? Yeah, okay. yeah, there've been, yeah, it's a, it's one of, it's a very rare example of research being translated into policy that has actually saved lives. Okay. It's amazing. So I wondered, well, what do we do at the other end of life? And the answer is that it's a big mess. <laughs> so right. there aren't sort of clear policies and it varies state to state. So I got interested in that when I was, I think, a second year resident. I was a BI in Boston. Okay. And um, was lucky to kind of have some people who didn't work in that area per se, but just sort of let me be enthusiastic about it and helped me along with it and, you know, showed me how to do stuff. And, um, uh, and, I, and then I had wasn't doing any suicide work at the time, actually, um, but uh, used some sort of initial work I'd done as a resident to apply and get a um, the um, EMF fellowship, which is a two-year sort of research grant, basically, Okay. which was sort of part of how I got my job in Denver. They, they, I had applied for it, the hope was I was going to get it, and that sort of helped me with my initial package, I guess, back okay. when I got applied, when I uh, was uh, hired. Okay. Um, and so then that led to uh, work, more work here, all about older drivers, and then that eventually sort of led to a K award. And I do a lot of work now, actually in primary care clinics, which is kind of strange. I think mostly just because that's where that's, you have their ear, right? Yeah. When I, I don't think that it's the job for an ER doctor to be having a conversation with an older person about whether they should drive or not. In the short term, yes. And I think definitely we should think about it and say to patients, you know, if you're on this new medication. I just put a cast on your right foot, right? Right, like those kinds of things. But I think it's appropriate to say you should really go talk to your primary care doctor because I think what we know from the lots of work that other people have done and the work I've done is that people really want to talk about these things with a healthcare provider who they know and trust, and right. that's usually not us. So in this case, I think we have a, 
a role, but it's more of a sort of referral back role. And I okay. don't think that this is what happens in the ED. You know? That makes sense. Yeah. My favorite place is always the Lion's Eye Institute when I was a medical student there. <laughs> All the people who we had just tested and knew they couldn't see, who could really drive really well, they would tell us. That yeah. was, so that's the place that I do not drive around yeah. or walk around. Yeah. I, I so all I will say on the, on the area of driving though, is that yeah. I think uh, it's been interesting in that I, I've, I had a lot of misconceptions going into it. And I think we need to acknowledge for, the, for older adults, driving is really linked to their independence, ability to get out of the house, but also sort of their well-being and how they see themselves. Mm -hmm. And so um, we have to think pretty carefully about when we take away someone's license and what that means. There's studies showing it leads to early death and depression and all kinds of things. Um, and on the flip side, also know that, um, no offense, you are probably a worse driver <laughs> than most older people when you're driving home after a night shift or if you've had a beer or... Um, you know, young people tend to drive fast and on highways and... Um, I go over 20 miles an hour, so that do, is right. probably a higher risk. So yeah. I think, you know, I think there's a lot of like media attention when like an older person right. hits someone or there's a crash, but in fact, the vast majority of crashes are from young people, not from old people. Yeah. So, right. you know, there's some bias there, but... <laughs> and then... Uh, <laughs> A little bit of bias. A little bit of bias, yeah. And the other thing is just we're just not set up as a community, especially like Denver is definitely not set up to right. get anywhere without a car. So, right. you know, it's I'm sure it's very isolating for right. anybody I, to. I do think it's something we probably don't think about in the ED when we're sending someone home. Like, how are you going to get your medications tomorrow? Yeah. How are you going to um, get out to get food over the next three days? You know, if someone is older, okay to go home, but, but frail still. And, you know, there are... Um, some other transportation options around, so not just taxis. I have some older people who tell me they love Uber, which I think is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to know how to use a smartphone, though. Um, so, you know, those kinds of social resources that sometimes case management and social work and things can help with. But, you know, thinking about transportation as a key part of uh, your ADLs, I think, is something we might not do at all. Yeah, no, no, I don't think we, I don't think we do it at all. But it's you know if we if people all live downtown and you could get to the grocery store yes. within a block and you know that that's much different than a city like this where like my aunt recently went through a lot of this where she it took years for her to decide to give up her car but you know it was a lot about like does she want everybody to have to shop for her um, right. does she want to have to rely on everybody for everything else and it was a that was a big process to go through and I mean at least in our little family that it, it was tough so I'm sure on a bigger scale they're probably like like us do mm -hmm. that yeah. yeah no totally yeah um so yeah the, so suicide you yeah about suicide? <laughs> it's probably a good way to end the conversation yeah, yeah sorry <laughs> can i make I, can i make suicide jokes probably not too many in my if you're with me you can because it's uh i have people pieces of paper all over my office with things like suicide to do and <laughs> it's not something to joke about but it, it if, if you same, work in any field you have to have Yes. Probably well, an ability to laugh at something. And point. I would say that my actual general message, if you take away one thing, is that we have to start talking about suicide. Right. Like, it, it's it's far more common than what we want to admit. There's still all this stigma. People are embarrassed to talk about it. And, like, we just, we have to. Okay. Including joke about it, I guess. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit. Maybe a little bit, a little yeah. Okay. So, how do you, what was the, what, like, opened the door to suicide for you? And why, why did that become an important topic yeah. to cover? So I, so I admit some of it was pure luck that when I came to University of Colorado, there was a brand new study starting that had just gotten funded and they needed a site PI for the ED. Okay. So it, like a Dick and they helped kind of 
he knew I was coming. He was he asked me if I'd be interested, and I was kind of a placeholder. And then I got here and junior person and got this awesome opportunity to work with some great people in the field. Um, and that in itself was a great experience of multi-center trials and sort of seeing how these things get done. Um, but I, I think I hadn't really thought about it before, but then realized actually how much it means to me individually. So um, I have had, uh, I think probably the most significant loss for me was that my um, uncle um, died by suicide in the 60s when my dad was in med school. So I never knew him, um, but he was married, three kids, had a good job, and then shot himself in the head. And I think as a result of probably profound depression that didn't get treated because there was all the stigma, especially a man seeking help and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I've seen, even decades later, the, the sort of ripples of guilt, anger, shame, et cetera, that people don't want to, in my family, still talk about it. Yeah. And, um, and then you start talking to people and you find out actually everybody knows at least one person. Uh, you know, and I have other family members and friends who have died by suicide or thought about it. And I, I think I hadn't started out with some like personal commitment that this was the thing I was going to take on. But mm -hmm. it, I, it's really, as I've started working in it, I found it to be profoundly gratifying in that sense, which is, I think, now one of the thing that really, uh, thing that energizes me, along with the fact that I feel like we do a terrible job of it taking care of suicidal patients in ED. So it feels like there's a, an area where there's like a lot of room for improvement. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of room to do, uh, to do good, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So the kind of the personal, the personal, uh, experience driving it to start with. And then what have you got, what have you found so far? I know you've done papers on our in physicians, uh, thought about whether we can actually help people mm -hmm. if we screen them. Mm -hmm. So a couple questions around that is, what have you found on those studies? And then what's the reality of what we can do to make a change in, in people's lives who are, you know, have profound depression or suicidal? Yeah. So maybe I'll start off with a couple, answer your second question first. Sounds a couple good. facts and then sort of that'll lead into where we've gone. So a couple of things to know about suicide. So most, and I'm not talking about physician-assisted suicide, terminal illness. You know, that's mm -hmm. a, a subset of suicide that I think is um, maybe different in how yeah, we talk about Yeah, that seems like it. a whole. Yeah. So we know that most suicides are um, very impulsive and typically triggered by an acute crisis. Acute meaning like something within the past 24 hours. Okay. And impulsive on the level of minutes. So there was one study where they interviewed people who'd survived a fatal, near-fatal attempt, and they said something like 24% said it was only five minutes, five minutes from the time that they decided to kill themselves to the time they actually did something. Okay. So that's like, you know, I mean, sh certainly there are people who've been planning things for months, but most right. people, it's really like in the heat of the moment, I can't take it anymore, and they look around and do something. Okay. So we also know um, that most people who um, think about or attempt suicide are very ambivalent. Um, and I think it's important to know, too, that, that are, they're often viewed as a very selfless act, like truly believe the world would be better without me. So I think people sometimes think it's very selfish, but mm -hmm. in fact, they're really doing it because they really think the world is better off if I'm not here. Yet they still have a desire to live on some level. And um, from studies where of, of um, people who've attempted and survived, pretty much all of them are very grateful to be alive and grateful to have been saved. And so there's this ambivalence about 
do they actually want to die or not? And so if you look at all people who attempt suicide mm -hmm. of that group, only 10% actually go on to die by suicide. Okay. So I think we sometimes view it as like a terminal illness, but it's really not. I mean, it's, it's um, most people, there, certainly there are people who attempt multiple times, but most people are not going to go on to die by suicide. Okay. Um, and I think that, um, so in a, maybe two other facts, because a lot of what I do is around guns, so I sure. think it's helpful to sort of build up the where we're going. Um, so guns are the, by far the most lethal method. Um, they're responsible for about half of all suicide deaths in this country. Okay. And the case fatality rate's like 90%, okay. right? Because if you take a bottle of pills, you can call 911 if right. you suddenly regret it. You can't do that if you've just shot yourself. And so when we think about gun violence, for example, this is a bit of a tangent, but they're, uh, you know, of all the gun deaths in the U.S. each year, something in 63% are suicide deaths. Huh. But we don't talk about yeah, that, right? Yeah, that's a lot higher than... It's a lot higher than yeah. we talk, right? We hear about the kid deaths and we hear about domestic violence and and um, school shootings and things. But in fact, the majority of gun deaths in this country are suicide. And I, I think that gets back to the stigma thing that we don't talk about it. Because mm -hmm. somehow those people don't matter. They would have found another way. We can't say... Whatever it is, right? right? So... Um, but then we also know that because suicide's impulsive and because it's sort of this ambivalent thing, we know that restricting access to very lethal things like guns works. So if you put barriers on bridges, your suicide rates go down. Like this has been replicated. It's been lots shown. Of, oh, lots okay. of up to 50% reduction in suicide rates in different, depending on the geographic area you're looking at, things like changing the cooking gas in England. I mean, there have been cool things they've done on like countrywide levels. Okay. Before we get off that, what yeah. did they do to the cooking gas in England? Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. I can't remember. It was something about so that if you put your head in the oven, it made yeah. it harder to die. So less oven. They changed it. No, they yes. changed the composition of it. All right. I'll and try then, to look it up and oh, put it in Oh, thanks for making me look stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> answered everything else so well. So so, so we know that if, okay. you, if you restrict access to things like lethal methods, yeah. it prevents deaths. Okay. And we know that having a gun in your home is a risk factor for suicide. Mm -hmm. Not because owning a gun makes you suicidal, but because in that moment of crisis, if you reach for a gun, it's more likely to die. Got it, okay. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not talking about gun control legislation, I'm talking about like, heat of the moment. Acute. Is the gun locked up? Can you get to it? Do you have the key? Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think that we, in this country currently, don't get a lot of training in emergency medicine about suicide, even though we actually see, I mean, some crazy volume, right? Yeah. Suicidal patients. Mm -hmm. One one a shift, I would argue, if at least. Not, if, if not, not more. more. Yep. Um, but we don't get great training. And I think there's been, at least when I trained, there was this sense of sort of, like, I remember sort of being trained or having role modeling for me that you'd go in and be like, I'm Dr. Betts, I'm the medical doctor. Someone else is going to come talk to you about your suicide problems, but do you have any medical issues you need to tell me about? Right. I mean, it was sort of was that kind of separation, right? Yeah. Like, ooh, we don't deal with that. And I think that's a problem for our field because I think that this is an area where we need to take some ownership over at least some of it, especially if you're going to be out on your own and so forth. And um, so we've done some um, survey work, multi-site survey work, uh, that it, looking at a bunch of things about ED provider attitudes. but. One of them, your original question, yep. um, was basically showing that I think ED providers are still skeptical about whether suicide is preventable, which is, I think, because we haven't trained our mm -hmm. field well. Um, that people feel okay about screening, so asking the questions, right? Yep. But then they don't really know what to do after that. 
I think exactly. also fits with experience, right? Um, and then that we don't really ask about guns. Unless someone says, I'm suicidal and I'm going to shoot myself. Then people ask about a gun routinely. Yep. But we don't, in other cases, when somebody still might be pretty high risk. Um, and if you think, again, about the impulsivity part, that that's why you want to always ask. Um, and so that's some of the work that, that um, we've done and, uh, and hopefully is going to lead to sort of thinking about I'm really interested in the communication pieces now and how do we talk to patients and how do we educate providers but also do this in a way that's like fits into our systems of care, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so how do we talk to patients? I don't quite know the answer to that okay. yet. But I so I think I mean I think one of the things we don't know is why providers don't do a better job at this. And I think I can speculate about a lot of reasons. I think it's we haven't been trained, we're really busy. There are definitely studies showing that we have biases against mental health patients, mm-hmm. which we've got to get over because we all have our own access disorder of some kind, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> or, yeah. Um, uh, and, um, and then I think in the realm of some things like suicide and guns, it's also that w- we don't want to open the box because we don't know what to do with it. Like, we don't know what to say to right. them. We don't know, I don't know where to store your gun or I don't know what to tell you about how you're feeling or, right? Like, it makes us feel uncomfortable because we just haven't been trained. Um, and sometimes it's appropriate to leave those like longer evaluations to a specialist. That's totally appropriate. I'm not suggesting we get rid of our, our psychiatrist, yeah. but I would say general sort of comments would be, um, that we should be empathetic. That's probably true for all patients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think hopefully everybody knows that if you ask someone about suicide, you're not going to suddenly put the thought in their head. Most people are actually very grateful to have been asked, and so you shouldn't be afraid that you're going to like suggest it to them by bringing it up. Um, I think things like expressing, you know, that lots of people feel this way, that we want to help you, being non-judgmental, right? All these things that hopefully people know, but I think are sometimes hard to do in practice. Um, and then um, in the sort of gun-specific questions, it's about like maybe providing options and education more so than telling them what to do if especially because it's kind of a political topic but Mm -hmm. so you know so what what kind of what kind of options do we i mean somebody has a gun at home most people don't want to give up their guns most people have guns because they want access to guns in case they need their guns so what like what strategies like so the the old guy who lives by himself 20 miles off the road do we I mean, yeah. I, I have the question even sitting here and I've been thinking about it for a while. Like, how do, how do you address that with them to try to make the, the situation as safe as you can? Yeah. No, it's a great question. And I think I should say one of the other barriers, I think, is like a fear on our part that we're going to offend people. Yeah. Right? Because you don't want to bring up a hot button topic. Yep. I will say that there is no evidence out there that patients are offended by this kind of questioning. Despite the law in Florida and efforts in Texas to pass a similar law barring physicians from talking about guns with patients. Oh, really? I didn't know about the Florida law. All right. Uh, yeah, so there's a law in the books in Florida that says physicians may not ask or write down anything about guns. Okay. And that we don't have First Amendment rights with patients yet. Okay. okay. So, okay. So, um, so um, but there's no evidence actually that patients are offended. And I think like many things, if you ask it in an appropriate, respectful way, people I've never had a patient get angry at me when I ask it in the context of, I wanna think about, is your home safe since you're feeling suicidal? Do you have access to guns? I've never had anyone get angry at me. Okay. It's not like I'm asking it. Like, and do you, do you have like the frank conversation of like, listen, we know that you know, you're know you feeling yeah. really depressed. Do you feel like killing yourself? 
you have, I know you have a gun in your house now. Right. How do we keep it safe for you so you don't access it? Or yeah. That's no, I think that's the kind of conversation that you need to have. And okay. so things like, um, so if they don't have one, that's easy, right? Yep. <laughs> they say no. Um, and if they do, I think there's sort of two things to consider. So one is that if they have a gun at home that they don't have, they won't talk about how to give it to someone temporarily or lock it up or do something to make it inaccessible. I think you as a provider should be more concerned about sending them home, okay. right? Because it's like you're sending them home to a more dangerous situation. Um, but if they are willing to, then you can, you know, that can actually make you feel better about a discharge plan potentially. Okay. So the options, you know, you can do storage within the home. So that's things like there are gun locks, there are safes, there are um, other kinds of storage cases. The key being, the key being not to have the key, right? right? Exactly. Um, and, you know, I think part of it is also that this doesn't have to be forever. This is while someone is in crisis is right. the point. And so it's true. Many people have guns because they want them accessible yeah. for the boogeyman who comes in the night. Yep. Um, and so one way to get around that is to talk about that this is, we're talking about temporary. If you have someone in your home with chronic mental illness, uh, I, my suggestion would be that you seriously weigh the risks and benefits of having that gun there in terms of the risks of outside violence mm. versus, right? Because yep. we know from big studies that a gun in the home is more likely to be used against someone in the home than either by suicide or unintentional um, than against a perpetrator. Yeah. But in the context of talking to a patient, I think you can make the case that this is about temporary safety measures. Um, you can also think about seeing if a family member can temporarily take it out of the home um, or a friend. That's a little tricky in terms of like transfer laws and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, Police departments may store them. Many people won't want oh, that. Okay. Um, and then the thing that I'm really excited about is the idea of partnering with gun shops. So there, um, there's actually a study going on right now where we're going to be talking to gun shops in the area to see if some of them, because some places will store, yeah. gun shops will store guns, yeah. if they'd be willing to have partnerships so that, for example, we could say this shop on Colfax will store your gun for a dollar a day. And then it that might feel like a safer place for someone than say the police department. Yeah, yeah, it seems culturally appropriate. Yeah, and there's a project going on on the west. The end. This ending was not intended to be a metaphor, a tongue-in-cheek gag, or a joke of any kind. It was just that we it was a rookie mistake, and we ran out of digital recording space.